This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Well, Ashley. Hello, Candy. We are back we are. for our final episode focused around the theme of the true crime behind some of Hitchcock's classics. That is right. And it's been, if dark, it's still been very fascinating. It's been a roller coaster of emotions for us. It's been like, we talk about the movies and we're so excited and the true crime, we're like, this is gross. And then we do the movies and it's wonderful. So (laughs) it's been up and down. And But you can see, you can clearly see how these cases that are notorious, that people talk about, that are Mm -hmm. in everybody's consciousness, it did influence because it's real life influence. Influencing art. I mean, it's, it's... And I think our final episode might be the biggest case oh, of them all. I think it and is. And I'm going to go on record as saying, we will not solve it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm backing you up on that. I am. I don't think in our armchair with our little <laughs> fake pipes that we are going to solve this case. Much like the the Black Dahlia. Well, good thing we let the audience know right up that's front. Right, not that's to right. Expect don't any... expect miracles, okay, guys. Right. <laughs> so all that said, I have not asked you this question, but your intro just actually leads into it nicely. What would you say are the top five or six most famous serial killers or the most famous cases? The most famous serial killers? Yeah. Mm, well, of course, I'm going to... The one, the one we're doing is the one that I think of but yes. do you want me to say his name yet or do you want me to hold that even though people have seen the title we always play this game of guess what we're doing that's we okay go ahead jack the ripper yes it's i mean jack the ripper golly other famous ones i guess charles manson mm-hmm. but he didn't do it supposedly he convinced his followers to do it oh i still consider him a serial oh, absolutely. killer yes 100%. absolutely uh ted bundy mm-hmm. he comes to my mind too what was ramirez was he the night stalker guy oh richard ramirez i think he was okay son of sam i don't mm-hmm. know yeah some of those gross guys yeah and the reason i ask is because it's something we've talked about before these are some of the worst individuals Mm -hmm. in history doing Mm -hmm. the most atrocious awful things and yet we know about them Mm -hmm. we know their names Mm -hmm. and we know a lot about what they did because for whatever reason it's so atrocious that it's like you can't you can't believe it right you can't you can't wrap your mind around it it's just it just it's something about it 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 just it it is interesting in this Mm -hmm. awful way Mm -hmm. and we've talked about different reasons why we think so but we are today talking about as you said jack the ripper who is probably one of the most famous serial killers Whomever he in may be. history. Yes, exactly. Whomever he may be. Exactly. And he was the inspiration for a number of movies. Yes. But in this case today, we're going to talk about the influence of the Jack the Ripper case on the Hitchcock classic movie called The Lodger, The Story of the London Fog. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mix it up this time. I, I, I am going to ask us to share a few impressions of the movie first, okay. but I'm actually then going to start with the 
true crime. Oh. Because it's big. And it is, I think, what everybody is so... Is here for. Yes. And then we'll talk more about The Lodger and how it might connect. Sure. If that's okay. Yep. Okay. So just briefly, The Lodger, the story of the London Fog, I'm going to call it The Lodger for short, is a silent movie. Which was your first one watching, right? My first full length silent movie ever. What'd you think? Well, I I have a lot of thoughts. So okay. well, let's share our impressions okay, in just sorry. a second. Just to kind of give more background, it was okay. released in 1927. It was black and white and it was Alfred Hitchcock's, well, it's one of the ones that he made very early in his third career. Third film ever, I think. Mm, yeah, third or fourth. I can't recall, but his wife was listed as the assistant director. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have that down too. And according to the trivia, this was the very first film in which he made a cameo appearance. Oh. He was seen from Pine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he had to. Because somebody didn't show up. Exactly. That's right. So it made me wonder, had that not happened, would this have become his thing? I think it was happenstance yeah. that he had to fill in in this particular kind of role. And then maybe from there on, he's like, I'm going to do this every time. But he is the fella seen from behind early in the film as a newspaper telephone operator. Having said that, well, I'll say one more thing. The premise of the movie is a landlady suspects that her new lodger is the madman who is killing women in London. Which ties back to our Shadow of a Doubt mm-hmm. episode where we talked about the landladies and taking in lodgers. And it's like, yes. ladies don't. Well, but you had, they to, had do to. To they had to do it to survive. Which is a huge point, I think, throughout this entire <gasps> yes. episode. So you asked what I thought mm-hmm. seeing my first silent film. And it was funny because my first thought was actually recognition that I hadn't seen one before. Okay. Because, you know, over the course of your life, you'll see like short little clips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I guess I'd seen maybe small episodes, like shorts, if, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. First, there was the recognition, oh my goodness, I am watching a full-length movie that's... 90 minutes. Yes. That is, how is this going to go? How uh-huh. is this going to play out? I had so many thoughts. Number one was I saw the transition. I saw how this was the middle ground between theater and stage and a talking movie. Yeah. Because like on the one hand, it was more like film. It was film. You know, yeah, you yeah. had continuity, you had different locations, uh-huh. you had all those things, interactions that were you couldn't do on a stage. But yet I saw all those theatrical things like the gestures and the expressions yes, the and the makeup that was overdone yeah. and things that were just kind of in your face. So, I think it's interesting in silent film that you don't get all of the captions. It's not like subtitles. Mm-hmm. We're not going to see what they're saying. They'll have full on conversations and we will, unless you lip read, you don't know what they you just said to know. each other. Yes. And then they'll just throw up a card. I think I saw on somewhere that this thing started with like 400 title cards and they got it down to like 80. Yes. So there's only 80 sentences that tells you what the heck is happening. But by their expressions and you their body language, it. you can follow the whole Every thing. Every bit of it. Every yes. bit. My number one thing that I wrote down, which I went in a little insane about was this was released in 1927. Mm-hmm. We are not yet a hundred years later. Think of the advancements. Oh, that is so interesting. And the technology. Only 50 years later, 1927 to 1977, we've got Star Wars. Oh, that Star is crazy. Wars, from the Lodger to Star Wars. Yes. In 50 years. Well, and from the Lodger in 1927 to Psycho in 1960. I mean. Yes. Yes. Oh my god. And goodness. I wrote later on, if you want to talk about this, we can, but I went down a rabbit hole of what happened in 1927? Who was born in 1927? Mm. Like, so I've got that later, but it was just like, what was the world like in 1927 that it's less than a hundred years? That is so crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another noticing I, I jotted down 
down was I felt like there were allusions not only to the Jack the Ripper case, but almost it almost felt like Dracula when he is standing in the doorway and the fog is surrounding mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. and you see the landlady pause and then it's as though she invites him I in. I have it made me think of a all, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have man all wrapped up. Step away, sir. Step yes. away. So see, you were saying about Dracula, it looks like she's inviting him in. Yes, it looks like she's inviting a vampire into her home. Mm-hmm. I thought that makes me think of Dracula. And then there was a place where he's looking out and there's like a cross across his face. Yes. And I was like, this is so symbolic. Like Hitchcock in some ways, I don't know if it's because of his directorial choices or because of the silent movie genre, but it was as though sometimes he needed to almost put a neon flashing sign in our face, what he was trying to convey. Like there were several things that it was like, he's really trying to make sure we don't miss this. Yeah. Like, he really <laughs> yes. wants us to get this. He was giving me, uh, I wrote in my notes, like, why you got to act spooky? Why you got to come in <laughs> acting all spooky? But he gave me serious Johnny Depp vibes, like Edward Scissorhands. The way he was emo and emoting yes. at the top of it. And I wrote on here, Daisy's awful because a murderer who's killed seven people and is still on the loose and some weird stranger is emoing around her spare room and she's got blonde hair. And she's like, I'm going to hang around you. <laughs> yes. And it's so funny because I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it yet. We'll talk okay. about it at the end. But there's, there's a choice Daisy makes midway through the movie where I'm like, are you, what? Why, why in the world are you going this way? And then when I read some of the backstory, I went, oh, oh. okay. So we're going to talk about okay, that when we talk about casting. <laughs> I but, will also say the quote in the film always happens on Tuesdays. That's my lucky day. I was like, Tuesdays is scandal water day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our lucky day. That's right. That's right. Again, I just, I wrote, Daisy needs to simmer down with her emo boy eyeballing. She's like, hello, you. It's like, Daisy, gosh. And she only got attracted to him when somebody said, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't go for, for that. And she's like, she's, she. The challenge. The challenge. The challenge. Completely oh, now the challenge. I'm totally after this. Yep. You know, one other thought I had as I was watching, we had the classic, someone is snooping in the room, will they get caught scene. Uh-huh. That is such a. And the stairwell. And the stairwell. Those mm-hmm. are like such famous moments in suspense movies and I I couldn't help but wonder I'm like so was Alfred Hitchcock inventing it was this at like one of the know. first times in 1927 or was it already a thing even prior to this that he was just latching on to mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. I, I really locked on to the Tuesday I said I sure wouldn't go out on a Tuesday and then Daisy and the lodger on a Tuesday they go on a date look at what I drew I drew the little face like oh <laughs> <laughs> like why go out on a Tuesday with your blonde hair sister I don't know. And then the one who ends up getting murdered says, I'm going to start not dying. She had she peroxiding. Had she said, I'm going to stop peroxiding my hair. Is she the one that died? Didn't she? I don't Wasn't know. she one of the ones who was murdered early Possibly. On? I may have missed it. They kind of all, they all kind of went together. But the, I thought it was interesting that the girls were, you could tell that when they noticed it was a blonde, one of them was wearing the brown. She's tucked it up in her mm-hmm. hat. And oh, you yeah, could tell they by were their, hiding it. their facial expressions, they knew blonde meant. You're in danger. You're in danger. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Jack the Ripper. And then we'll come back to the movie and we can chime in with more of our noticings and thoughts as I'm kind of talking through some of the research I found. Okay, and I I've know only got you a few found left. a yeah. few quotes in your book as I well. I did, yes. So you can bring those in. Jack the Ripper, you all. <laughs> 
you all. This was the most daunting research task because number one, it's huge. Yeah. It is so big. I know you all know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There are things called ripperologists. No. Yes. I did not know that. People, people dedicate themselves to the study of Jack the Ripper and his cases. And as I was researching, I'm not kidding. Hundreds upon hundreds of theories that just pop up across your your feed. This feels like the Dahlia where people devote their entire lives and have wildly different theories. They do. And it made it really hard because obviously, you know, I make mistakes, but I try to go to credible sources and stay Mm evidence-based. And I'm not saying that some of these ripperologists, you know, weren't very evidence-based themselves, but it's hard for me to know where they're Mm -hmm. coming from. So I'm trying to avoid things that uh, that seem to be theory Mm -hmm. and find actual facts and so much conflicting information. So wild. It is really hard. So anyway, here's the, the best I could do. Here's what you distilled here's it what, down to. <laughs> yes. And forgive any little mistakes. I watched parts of so many documentaries, three of them in full. I can't tell you how many articles. I mean, it, this was a lot, mm-hmm. but it was fascinating. Okay. Fascinating. You are now a, a ripperologist yourself. Well, I'm not going to call myself that, but I'm on my way. <laughs> <laughs> There is this fascination. Uh, the term ripperology, by the way, was coined in the 1970s. So Ooh, it's that long ago gotcha. that people started using that terminology. What I found was that instead of starting with the cases, I got so caught up in the importance of context with this particular serial killer. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to me what I did not know. Mm-hmm. So context is huge. So Jack the Ripper's murders occurred in 1888 in the Whitechapel District, which was in the east end of London. And the setting could not be any more important. It was actually interesting to me because here we are in the holiday season as I'm doing my research. And I was taken back to Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. Because if you really look at the original source and not Mm -hmm. some of our, you know, musical versions of it, Mm -hmm. our musical versions tend to look bright and cheerful and sunny and people wishing yeah this was grim this was this was the workhouse situation Mm -hmm. this was the people who did not have money to support their families and get medical help for their children Mm -hmm. like this was that place it was poverty stricken it was people a lot of the living occurring on the streets because you couldn't afford to have your own home so you would have this large number of people living together in houses whether it was family or sometimes different families that were mixed together yes sometimes Mm -hmm. trade work would have to happen. There were small spaces. There was a National Geographic article that had a lot of photos that helped me understand what it was like because they said that the area where these murders occurred were some of the worst in terms of the most poverty stricken, the Mm. most deaths, the Mm. most violence. Mm -hmm. It was a hard, hard life. Mm -hmm. It was depressing. Mm -hmm. It was survival. It was just really dark and grim. And one of the things they pointed out, even sanitation, you know, people, there were horses going through the streets and you would have horse waste, you would have human human waste waste, as people would throw things out. This was also an area where a lot of the immigrants who were coming in had to live. And in some cases, there might even be a little bit of racial tension because Mm -hmm. there was fighting over the few jobs that were out Mm -hmm. there or just people being 
being culturally different. So it was just hard living conditions for a lot of people. And it was, I'm going to say it, it was worse for women because women did not have the same work opportunities that men did. Mm -hmm. If a woman became a widow or if her husband left her or they split for some reason, her options were very limited. Mm -hmm. In my understanding, her first option would probably be to try to find a new man because she needed the protection Mm -hmm. or to see if her family would take her in. But if those did not happen, even if she's trying to work, her chances of being able to support herself and pay for food and shelter were very, very small, very slim. National Geographic, I just mentioned, in one of their pictures, they show a photo. I'm going to let you look at it, Ashley. They describe that in Whitechapel, there were this untold number of lodging houses, these common lodging houses, and they would be crowded. They would be filthy. They might have lice or different Mm -hmm. types of, you know, things going on Mm -hmm. there. But if you didn't have a home that night, you needed to stay somewhere. Although a lot of people didn't, they just, they just stayed on the street. Mm -hmm. But what happened was you had to, to pay in order to stay. And it would be four pence for a single bed, eight pence for a double. And for a tuppence, they had a rope strung across the room and you could sleep standing up just a (gasps) line of humans holding onto the rope, trying to stand (gasps) and sleep at the same time. Here is a picture of what a common lodging house might look like. Oh, gosh. You want to describe it briefly? It almost looks like they're laying in boxes. Mm -hmm. They're like the size of coffins, and some people are sitting. Are there people that are standing? I don't see the rope where they're hanging on to it, but they're just standing. Mm -hmm. That's horrible. Yeah. And they they just look grief-stricken. Yeah. And it was a daily thing. Mm. Like, you find your bedding for that night, and now the next day, place you are out you don't have a place to stay can I earn my money mm-hmm. today to have a you know, bed tonight that reminds me that triggered a memory when we did the Elliot Ness episode do you remember how I believe him when him and his wife went to Washington DC she was having to do that where every day she'd have to try to find a place mm. for them to sleep that night I didn't remember about that I, I, that's that triggers a memory that yeah. I think she was having to do that go out and try to find lodging for them that night because it reset I think it was during the war and everybody mm. was so overwhelmed with people that they yeah. They, you couldn't stay there again. It is hard to imagine we are fortunate, right? To mm-hmm. have a place, that a shelter mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. You take it for granted. But mm-hmm. to think about every day that battle, it's hard to comprehend. And a woman who was homeless also didn't have the protection of a man because yeah. this is an area, extreme violence. Things are happening. In fact, beyond Jack the Ripper's murders, there were other murders happening during this yeah, time period. Yeah, that's just period. a way of life. Yeah. I want to give this background because one of the, the points that came up in my research that I'd never really thought about before was the fact that everybody remembers Jack the Ripper. Nobody remembers the victims. Yes. We've said this before. We that have. This, this happens across yep. other cases mm-hmm. that the victims often get doubly abused in that they suffer. They get what, forgotten. Right. They, they get, you, yes. they almost, the killers almost get glamorized. You know, mm-hmm. their names are said almost with like a horrific reverence. You're just like, oh, Jack the Ripper, you know, but we don't talk about the women. the women. And it's even worse in this case because most people in their minds just go, well, Jack the Ripper killed prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And they just get dismissed in that mm-hmm. way. Something I saw across a number of sources. And in fact, there was a book written by a female historian, a social historian named Hallie Rubenhold called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, is this move to show that who they are. It, it, they were people Mm -hmm. 
And not to say that they might not have sometimes had to resort to making money Mm -hmm. in that way in order to get lodging, Mm -hmm. but that's not who they were. Mm -hmm. It was actually part of the situation they were in for most of them. Mm -hmm. And also in some ways a product of their situation, the time period and what they had to do. Yes. So we'll keep fleshing that out a little bit as we go, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. So the canon is that there were five victims, although many people think there were more, Mm -hmm. but these are the five that everybody agrees. Okay. You know, Jack the Ripper was responsible for. And according to a USA article, part of this is because it was designated by Chief Constable Melville McNaughton, somebody who worked on the case. He at some point wrote these down. And so that's part of why these are the five that are canon. But a lot of other people think that Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, who were also mentioned in the Whitechapel murders police file, might have been part of it. So there could be seven? There could be seven. There actually could be more could than be that. More. Some okay. people, some people mention a few others. Five but, agreed but, upon, but could be two bonus. It, yes. Okay. But again, if I were to say prior to doing this research, if I, if you and I had sat down and I said, let's name, I can't, I couldn't have done a single one, no. not a single one. So we've heard very little about them other than just, you know, kind of lumping them together. In her book, the one I just referenced, Hallie Rubenhold said, quote, the victims of Jack the Ripper and their lives have become entangled in a web of assumptions, rumor, and unfounded speculation. They were formed at a time when women had no voice and few rights and the poor were considered lazy and degenerate to have been both these things was one of the worst possible combinations and national geographic in the same article that i've mentioned a few times now they said poor women in Whitechapel often lived in the shadows those outside their circles knowing or caring little about their hardships like many poor women of the time the five victims were bound together in the same cycle of poverty violence abandonment and addiction Mm -hmm. What came out through my research, I'm kind of still giving a little bit of the background and then we're going to get into what actually happened. Okay. But basically most, if not all of the five victims actually tried to earn money through work. Domestic servant. You mean like a a quote unquote respectable? Like like, yes. Well, the first victim, Polly Nichols, had tried to earn money uh, different times as a domestic servant. One did crochet work, sewing, sold Mm -hmm. flowers. Another one cleaned rooms. You know, there was lots of different things they did, but the article went on to say that despite their efforts, quote, financial security eluded all five of these women and turning to sex work was a fast way to earn money to survive. It's not a definitive thing that they all did that, but they may have at different times. So one historian also commented that most, if not all the women were alcoholics. Mm. And the clarification was that this was a time period when moderate drinking was socially acceptable and even typical, but drinking to excess was not. And this historian commented, that sometimes people like these women may have actually gotten into hard circumstances because they had an addiction. They may have been an alcoholic mm-hmm, that led mm-hmm, to worse mm-hmm. things or because of their conditions, they may have turned to alcohol yeah, as a way to cope as a way to cope. All right, here we go. I've given all that background. According to Edmund Reed, who was one of the detectives assigned to investigate the case, here are five facts that we do know about the women. They were, at some points, involved in working the streets. All of them were from the lower class. All lived no more than a quarter of a mile from one another. And all the murders were committed after pub closing time. And this was something else that was added as a fact. No one ever heard a single scream or cry for help, which is incredible incredibly unusual in such a densely populated area and none of the bodies exhibited defense wounds wow Mm mm-hmm 
There's all the background. Now we're going to walk you through it. Marianne Nichols, who people called Polly, was the first confirmed victim of Jack the Ripper. She was around 43 years old. Sources varied a little bit. Because her father was a blacksmith, she actually had more education than a lot of working class women at that time did. She could read and write. But during her childhood, her family fell on hard times after her mother and at least one sibling died of TB. She married. She had five children. But her marriage fell apart because of her drinking Mm. And her husband's affair with another woman who lived in their building. Many sources speculated that the two factors, those two factors of the affair and the drinking, caused everything Mm -hmm. to escalate. Kind of implode. Mm -hmm. And some sources said that her husband abandoned her. But Hallie Rubenhold's book says she left her husband because of the situation. Okay. And most of them seem to agree the kid stayed with dad and she's now kind of just trying on her, own. on her own. Yes. Again, she tried to make some money, but she may have also worked the streets. And on the night she died, she had reportedly spent the money. She had money for her bed that night mm. at the lodging house. But she, some said that she was drinking and spent it. And so she was turned away from the lodging house because she, she didn't, didn't have, enough. have enough money. And then she was was found dead in the early morning hours of August 31st, 1888. We're going to kind of gloss over these yeah, details. Yeah, but we don't need to know yeah, the Her throat was cut and her abdomen had been opened. They used the term disemboweled mm. in one. So a week later, Annie Chapman, who was a 47-year-old widow and a mother, was discovered on September 8th, shortly before 6 a.m., in a yard on a street not that far away. According to National Geographic, it was the only time someone might have actually caught a decent look at the killer. Here's their quote from their article. The one solid reported sighting of the killer was on the early morning of September 8th, 1888, when a woman saw Annie Chapman accompanied by a, quote, foreigner Hmm. of medium height wrapped in a dark cloak. They are believed to have met just after 5.30 a.m. and her body was found half an hour later. Like all of his other victims, there were no signs of resistance and no one heard her cry out. Hmm. Her injuries appeared similar to Polly's, but it was worse Mm. because she was missing some of her internal organs. Mm. She also had been kicked out of a lodging house because she couldn't pay the fee. And so referring to both of these first two victims, one person who wrote an article commented, effectively, they died because they didn't have the four pence to pay for a Mm. bed. That's so sad. And just before I go on, an interesting side note, since it seems to fit here. The author of the book I've mentioned a few times, she goes back to that fact that none of those victims were heard to scream or call for help. And she commented it was it was as though all the murders had occurred in silence. And she also pointed out that a coroner's inquest would later show that the murderer did not have any relations with the women and they all died in a reclining position. So her theory is that they may not have even... Were they asleep, you think? Yes. Oh. She, is, she wonders, they've always been assumed to have been working the streets at uh-huh. that time but were they simply asleep, Just asleep. that's were interesting they, that is her she asked that in fact here's a quote the police were so committed to their theories about the killer's choice of victims that they failed to conclude the obvious that the ripper targeted women while they slept oh. Now, that's just one person's theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to throw it out there. Now, in the meantime, after even just a few murders, letters are coming in. All these hoax letters, people claiming to be the murderer. And one of those letters is how we got the name Jack the Ripper. Oh. 
On September 27th, a letter arrived in the Central News Office in London. It was called, it's been called the Dear Boss Letter because that's how it started. That was the greeting. And before this time, the news would just often refer to the murderer as with titles like Leather Apron or the Whitechapel Fiend. Mm. But because this letter was signed, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. They started calling him that. Yep. It said, and it, had, don't, it said, yours truly, Jack the Ripper, don't mind me given the trade name. From that point on, they started calling and him Jack the Ripper. And that was probably a hoax person that hoax. gave him that name. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So back into our timeline, September 30th, 1888, two women were murdered on the same night. Elizabeth Stride was 45. Again, hard life. She had worked as a domestic servant. She sewed. She worked the streets. The police records show that she'd actually been involved in prostitution in a, at a young age. She had married a man whose last name was Stride, but they ended up separating and he later died. And for the last few years of her life, she was involved in this very tumultuous off and on again relationship with a dock worker that was off at the time of her death. So she was, Elizabeth, was reportedly seen by some eyewitnesses with a few different men the evening of her death. And she was found around 1 a.m with her throat slashed but she did not have the same mutilation to her Mm. body that the other victims did which some believe was because the murderer was interrupted by the first person which was a man who came upon the scene is this the one that i sent you the video about no that was actually we'll come back to him that was he found polly the first victim okay yeah she's around 1 a.m and it's around 1 45 a.m that Catherine eddowes was found dead 45 minutes later so Catherine or Kate, as most people called her, was a 46-year-old woman who lived a couple of decades and had children with a common-law husband, but the two had broken up. One source said it was because of his physical abuse and her drinking. So then she had entered a long-term romantic relationship with another man named John Kelly, and according to the Crime Library website, the night before her death, Kate had told her boyfriend, John, that she was going to visit her daughter to borrow some money, and he had actually warned her about the white chapel killer and told her to come back early and she had responded quote don't you fear for me i'll take care of myself and i shan't fall into his hands that's awful yeah because they were actually she had a boyfriend that seemed to care about her yeah but she never got to her daughter's house somehow she got sidetracked and ended up in jail at the bishop's gate street police station for drunkenness Mm. so she had stopped somewhere to drink she slept it off till around 12 30 a.m after which when she woke up she asked if she could go apparently it took a little bit of time so at one point she asked what time it was and the policeman told her it was around one o'clock that they were noting times and right after that was when the constable let her go and her killing was incredibly brutal now what time did she die 145 so it's like 45 minutes after she gets released wow yeah it was oh. everything was so fast yeah everything was so fast but and I, and I don't think she would have been asleep because she just right. was asleep yeah she couldn't have been asleep mm. i don't think Interesting. yeah that's a good point in addition to her throat being cut her face had been cut and her abdomen had been opened and some organs had been removed including a kidney and that is significant because on october 16th there was a man named george lusk who was president of the vigilance committee that was a committee that was trying to do you know as citizens trying to do something about these murders he received a small cardboard box wrapped in brown paper that had an indistinct london postmark and when he opened the parcel he found inside a piece of meat 
and there was also a letter. They call it the From Hell letter because it started with, From Hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. T'other piece I fried and ate. It was very Ah. nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out. Only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. That's the famous From Hell letter. Again, thousands of hoax letters have been sent, but George Lusk did take it to the committee and somebody then took it to a doctor to examine and it ended up going to a couple of other people they at least one of these doctors a couple of them i think said they did think it was consistent with being the part of not the whole thing but part of the left kidney one of them even went on to say of a middle-aged woman which Mm -hmm. of course fueled this whole fire Mm -hmm. and i mean nowadays people question did the expert really say oh this looks like it could be you know the kidney of a middle-aged woman but that's what mythology has said through the years because before you said that i was starting to think if it was somebody who was selling the organs who was cutting because if times were so tough back then is he i don't know what you would sell them harvester yeah Yeah, something like that Mm -hmm. but no he didn't even do that no so we are we're almost finished with this guys i know this is hard the last of the five was a 25 year old woman named mary jane kelly also known as marie Jeanette, who was killed on november 8th inside a room like in the room she rented oh so this isn't on the street this is the only one that was not on the street she was found dead and mutilated by a man named thomas bowyer he was an assistant of the landlord and he his job was to collect overdue rent so she's the only one who was killed inside her house and the level of harm to her body was awful in fact somebody estimated it probably was took a couple of hours which this is significant because again everything else was on the streets Mm -hmm. and it was fast Mm-hmm. This was in a mm. room and they felt like he did so much more. And she was um, nude on her bed and sh- her face was unrecognizable. Parts of her body had been taken off or placed in different spots. So National Geographic had a quote where they talk about this physician who was invited to perform an autopsy on her remains. And he goes into a lot of detail on how she was mutilated. But one of the things that, that this person inferred was that Jack the Ripper might be a physician or even a a surgeon be, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people were saying that mm-hmm. but this man actually was the one who dismissed the idea because he oh. was a doctor and he said no I don't think the murderer was that precise and he said quote that the murderer lacked even the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer oh. so that was an interesting thing and then this National Geographic article points out that this fella even tried to almost um, do a little criminal profiling because this guy went on to say that the Ripper character had had to inflict excessive violence to the bodies afterward. Quote, the murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. Mm. And he went on to say that he, quote, is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. Here we go with the inoffensive looking Mm. guys again. Yeah. Like, okay, wait, wait. All of our murderers this month have been unassuming, quiet. The two rich kids Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. We had Mr. Gein, who was just quote unquote odd. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh oh the real Oakley. What was his I don't remember. Earl his name. Leonard Nelson. Yeah, he was unassuming and charming, and now this guy. Yeah. Which is again why they are Ooh. able to why yeah. they can be so prolific too, yeah. is because they don't send out necessarily all the red flags. Yeah. So with the suspects, people's fascination with the case has only increased with time. And the reason why they think that is, this man named Scott Bond says that he thinks it's because of the mystery that hangs behind it. He says Jack the Ripper just 
seemingly disappeared into the London fog, mm-hmm. never to be heard from again, mm-hmm. leaving us hanging and forever wondering who he was. So he calls it the granddaddy of all whodunits. Mm-hmm. And he also went on to say that the sensationalization of the killings and the newspaper coverage of the crimes coincided with the innovations in the mass media at that time. So he said, quote, it was the fact that the horrific murders shocked Victorian society and the fact that the individual was never apprehended combined with this new emerging media technology that allowed for widespread daily updates on the story is what helped to really just send Sell this. it. Yes. Yep. Sensationalism. Yeah. Yes. So there are literally over a hundred theories as to the identity of Jack the Ripper. I can't believe that. Over a hundred. Everybody from Lewis Carroll, who wrote the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland story, he was proposed at one point. Prince Albert Edward Victor royalty was proposed at one point. H.H. Holmes has been proposed before. So it just goes on and on. And you sent me one of the theories. I did. Do you want to tell them about that one? Oh gosh, that was that was the night I was rearranging my bathroom (laughs) I got this new organizer for my bathroom and so I at 10 o'clock at night I'm like I'm gonna organize everything so I just it just happened to come up and I knew we were doing this episode so it's like a 15 minute thing but this dude seems to think it's the first person that discovered the body I I don't remember the name now Charles Lechmere yeah and by the end of that 15 minutes I was like yeah solid I'm on it (laughs) I agree with you sir well it was funny because I had actually watched a 45 minute Smithsonian magazine documentary Uh uh-huh I think the title was The Missing Evidence, and it was the same theory. And I was the same way. I was like, oh, this sounds so yes, right. Yes, this sounds yes. so right. Everything's lining up. Yeah. You sent me that other video. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, those came out in the documentary I saw was 2015. And so I Googled theories. 2000, you know, 2023, brand new theories. Oh my brand, no, I mean, like some people now believe, you know, some people now do believe, you know, Charles Lechmere, that theory has gained popularity. Yeah. One of the reasons is he was reluctant to go to the police with the other guy. Like another dude happened upon him. He's like, oh, I just now discovered this. Look, it's awful. And he wanted to set the body up. And the guy was like, no, 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 let's leave her. Which I understand his thinking, which we now know, don't move the body. But mm-hmm. back in the day, he, mm-hmm. he's like, why do you, why do you not want to set her up and he Mm -hmm. goes and calls the police you want to go with me no 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 that's okay I'm not gonna go yeah that's the thing everything in that in that documentary made me go Mm -hmm. okay this aligns this makes Mm -hmm. sense yep check 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 solved but then again when I google 2023 I find out just this past July a woman named Sarah Bax Horton who is a relative of an officer on the original case has put out this new theory in a book where she says she's just certain it's a man named Hyam Hyams and her argument for this is that Hyams was a cigar maker known to be a quote violent lunatic who abused his wife and he was said to have attacked people with a knife mm. and she brought up all these pieces of evidence one of them was that different witnesses would talk about the distinctive gate when mm. there was a mm-hmm. sighting you know mm-hmm. witness descriptions and Hyam Hyams had this this awkward like walk because and he's of... also real angry because he's got a double name <laughs> yes. he's just angry about that too that's funny. Did, and, and then I sent you an article. I don't know if you were able to click on it, but somebody claims, I know what he looks like. I'm going to carve his likeness into this walking stick. Yes. And then that walking stick got lost and now it's rediscovered. And they're like, this is him. And other people are like, that doesn't, no, that doesn't, what? And that's the thing. I mean, in 2019, it was huge news when they said that there was a shawl that had been found at the site of Kate Edo's murder. Mm-hmm. And they were going to use technology, mm-hmm. you know, science DNA. to try to link this to one of their top suspects. 
Aaron Kosminski, who was a Jewish-Polish-born immigrant living in Whitechapel around the time of the murders. And he had been on their list when he was one that the detectives looked into back at the time because he fit some of the things they were looking at. And he had actually been admitted into the Middlesex County Lunatic Asylum in 1891 and then a different asylum in 1894 because he had a lot of these behavior things. Mm -hmm. But here they think, oh, we're going to use forensics. This will be the end of it. Here's what the USA Today article published this past Halloween said, quote, in 2019, a forensic examination was done of a shawl said to have been found next to Edo's body. The shawl was supposedly taken by a metropolitan police officer, Amos Simpson, and passed down through generations until Ripper researcher and businessman Russell Edwards bought it in 2007 and had it tested. They compared mitochondrial DNA extracted from the cloth to Aaron Kosminski's relatives, which were a match. Experts are still skeptical, noting that mitochondrial DNA can only exclude suspects, science reports. So they go on to say that because the shawl had not been kept in this inventory of the possessions that the police had, and they're also not sure how many people had handled that cloth over the generations, they don't even know if any of this has any validity at all. Mm -hmm. But a quote, a final quote from that same person was, it would be nice to use forensic evidence to solve this crime, but sadly, we can't. The shawl has to be treated with dubious provenance. Dang. Yeah. So the point is tons of theories we still don't We still know. don't know. We still don't know. And with that, mm. let's take a break okay. and we'll come back and talk about the movie. Where do you sip your scandal water? Do you catch up on the tea while folding your laundry? Sitting at your work desk? Working out at the gym? With the new year, we are also ringing in a few fun changes at Scandal Water, and one of them is including more listeners' voices in our episodes. So send in your shout-out, telling us your first name, your hometown, and where you are or what you're doing when you listen to Scandal Water, and you just might hear a voice you recognize starting one of our upcoming 2024 episodes. Email your audio clip to scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com. The voice memo app on your phone will work just fine. Cheers! All right, we are back to yes. talk about The Lodger. Oh, that was a lot with Jack the Ripper. That was a lot. It was. But I think it will be fascinating when we pull the two together here in a minute. Mm-hmm. So The Lodger, we've already given you the short IMDb summary. Here's one that provides just a little bit more detail. A serial killer known as the Avenger is on the loose in London, murdering blonde women. A mysterious man arrives at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Bunting looking for a room to rent. The Bunting's daughter is a blonde model who is seeing one of the detectives assigned to the case. The detective becomes jealous of the lodger and begins to suspect he might be the avenger right yeah i think that's a good summary it is a that is a really good summary yeah the movie came out as we've said in 1927 it came out a year later in america under the title the case for jonathan drew i did not even remember that jonathan drew was the lodger's name i did Did not either did they ever acknowledge that I I don't know that they ever said his name. Could not tell you. No, I I don't don't think think so. so. It was based on Marie Bellick Lowndes psychological thriller, The Lodger, that came out in 1913. Many sources that I saw said that it was the very first novelization of the the very, yes, of Mm. the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888. She'd actually written a short story a couple years earlier and it was popular. So then she expanded it into the novel. As a smart woman should. Right. Now, this is cool. Supposedly, she... She got the idea after she had dinner one evening and a man who was at the dinner with her shared this interesting story. He said he had rented a 
room from a landlady who was convinced that a previous tenant who had stayed there was Jack the Ripper. Interesting. And that's one of the theories the detectives had played with. They had always said, remember we talked about how quickly the murders would happen? One of their theories, they had many, but one of the theories was that, right, (laughs) was that maybe Jack the Ripper did stay in boarding houses and that's how he was able to get in and out the streets so fast. I would almost wonder if, if he, if somebody died because they quit and I cannot imagine this guy just being like, nope, I just felt like five. That's it. I'm done now. So I wonder if something happened to the murderer in that month mm-hmm. where he died. I don't know. Yeah. There's your, there's 101 theories right there. I just came <laughs> up with number 101. Yes. Well, in one of the documentaries I watched, the expert who was speaking commented that Hitchcock was interested in doing this film because he himself had lived not that far Ooh. from where Jack the Ripper had operated. Ooh. And if you think about it, the timing, he was born not that long after yeah. Jack the Ripper's murders. Yeah, yeah. So it was, quote, part of the lore yeah. of his neighborhood. Yeah. Like this was personal to him. That does sound personal. I mean, when you, when you talked about timing and thinking mm-hmm. about it, that my mind went to that, to think about the fact that Alfred Hitchcock was born in the area right and not long after it happened craziness so Alfred Hitchcock had filmed his previous two films while he was in Berlin and during that time he was exposed to German expressionism so when he came back he decided to incorporate some of those techniques in his next movie which was The Lodger and this would end up being his first critical and commercial success Hitchcock once told another filmmaker that although he had made a few previous movies he considered the Lodger to be his first true suspense film Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he was proud of the movie I thought this was adorable so I'm gonna let you guys listen to it I found Alfred Hitchcock giving an interview on the Dick Cavett show Mm -hmm. in 1972 and of course they were together for I don't know eight or ten minutes doing all kinds of cute stuff but I heard him say something briefly about the Lodger Mm -hmm. this is about I don't know 75 seconds you're gonna hear from Alfred Hitchcock most of us know of rope and strangers on a train and rear window and trouble with Harry and Psycho and Vertigo and the wrong man and all of those. But you made some very early films that are seldom, if ever, seen. D- do you have one way back there that would be Oh, yes. There was one called The Lodger, all about Jack yeah. the Ripper. You know why he... <laughs> Somebody wants to be ripped. <laughs> Smattering of applause. In this neighborhood, they may be, but... Uh... Well, that was the case in London in the 1890s when Jack the Ripper roamed around. And, uh, well, he just took that knife out and uh, placed it abdomenically <laughs> and slit. Yes. And there were sev- but there were several films about, made by, about Jack the Ripper. And, and, in fact, a couple named The Lodger. But yours was in was yours They in were the 30s? all copies of the first one. Oh. I made mine in 1926. 1926. When I was the boy director. Which, of course, I still am now. (laughs) Yes, I'm one of the best boy directors we have. So I thought that was fun to get to hear from Alfred himself. He's very meticulous in the way he speaks. And it was Each fun to watch him. Is too. selected, yes. But you can tell he's proud of it. He is. Yeah. He should be. Yeah. He should be. And also, randomly, I remembered another. You asked me the last episode what my favorite Hitchcock film is. I forgot. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is the only comedy he ever made. And I oh. really like that film. It's got Carol Lombard in it. You should check it out. Okay. Never even heard of it. So that's just an off offshoot. Yes. Now, did you say you had something you wanted oh, to share? Oh, I do, share? I do. Yes. Talking about when you said the success of The Lodger. In the book I've referenced several times in this series, it's only a movie, Alfred Hitchcock, a personal biography by Charlotte Chandler. He addresses that on page 60. He says, 
When the lodger was ready, Hitchcock said, the distributor screened the film and said it was dreadful. <laughs> C.M. Wolf particularly objected to the transparent ceiling. He wanted to give the story to another director to reshoot. I was at a pretty low ebb in my career. The lodger was shelved for several months, and then they decided to show it after all. They had an investment and wanted their money back. It was shown and acclaimed as the greatest British picture ever made. <laughs> so there, you see, is a thin line between failure and success. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. You know, that's interesting because that actually kind of feeds right into what I was about to say. Hitchcock was born in 1899. So first of all, we're talking 11 years after the murders. Yeah. But secondly, this puts him around 27 years old when he's making this film. Mm -hmm. So we think of him as Hitchcock. Yeah. But he is a new filmmaker. Like he is he's young Hitch and inexperienced. Hitchcock, not capital H. Yeah, he's just he, Hitchcock. <laughs> he is the boy Hitchcock. Yeah. So, you know, your quote and his, his comment actually both speak to the fact that he's still being questioned at uh -huh. this time. Like mm -hmm. he's not, and he's still finding his way and mm -hmm. he's still experimenting with things. And what he was talking about, the transparent ceiling is now hailed as something that was revolutionary because he shows the lodger. He said it took the place of sound. Mm -hmm. He wanted to show him pacing back yes. and forth and he did it with a transparent ceiling. Yes. And so one of the trivia comments I found was about how it's very similar to what you just said. Michael Balkin, the producer, was so concerned about Sir Alfred's progressive style of filmmaking and some of the elements he thought would be too controversial for the audience to enjoy mm -hmm. that he brought in that critic Ivor Montague to trim the film. That's how we went from 300 or 400 of those title cue cards. cards to 80 mm. because the title cards. He decided it was too much. He helped them cut that down and also encouraged them to reshoot a few of their scenes. Mm. And it was funny because one of the authors of the articles commented that in typical Hitchcock fashion, he never really gave Montague credit for his contributions yeah. when later talking about the movie. <laughs> so he was probably still a little resentful. Probably. But that made it tighter you yeah. know he also uh, did his focus on the hands we've talked about that we talked about that way early in rope how there's a focus on hands and I just made a note that he did focus on hands in this too yeah I like that you've moved into talking about some of those techniques because we know Hitchcock as the master of suspense and we definitely saw him building the suspense you've talked about the glass ceiling yeah that was one really cool way you know this producer called it a progressive technique mm -hmm. but that's one way that mm -hmm. he built the suspense the focus on the hands another thing that was said was well actually this follows up on your quote this was from the British Film Institute they said visually it was extraordinarily imaginative for the time most notably in the scene in which Hitchcock installed a glass floor so that he could mm -hmm. show the lodger pacing up and down in his room from below as though overheard by his landlady mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it was a call out on how visually he was able to do so many things because mm -hmm. there's no sound right he had to use what he had to work with right are there any other filming techniques you want to call out before no we... I didn't have other filming techniques I had a quote from the book my last quote from the book is about the leading man and how the leading man impacted the ending of the film yes well if you don't mind why don't let me share one more technique sure. and then we'll go back to casting yeah okay another notable scene this was on the Golden Globes website and this I think really shows Hitchcock's growing skills as a director and you know what? I'm going to ask you to read it, oh, okay. if you don't mind. I do not. 
Some notable scenes show the fledgling director's skill with visuals as well as his technical prowess. The film opens with a shot of the seventh victim of the serial killer, a blonde woman screaming. To film this scene, Hitchcock made the actress lie down on a sheet of glass with a light source underneath it. I remember reading this. The camera angled downward so her blonde hair spread in a halo of light. Another is one where the lodger paces back and forth in his room upstairs. The buntings in the room below stare at the swinging chandelier as the ceiling becomes transparent and they can see his agitated footsteps. Novella was filmed walking across the thick glass sheet that was superimposed by double exposure. Yet another shot has the camera over a flight of stairs, there we go, flight of stairs, looking down through the beautifully lit scene all the viewer can see is the illuminated hand of the lodger on the banisters as he runs down several stories. And then there's the famous one of Policeman Joe, head in hands, looking at a footprint on the ground upon which visuals reflecting his thought process are projected. Yeah, I love those examples. Mm -hmm. The movie was very similar to the book, except for a few notable differences. One was the decision to have the character Daisy stay in the same home with her parents, which is what is in the movie, because that allowed for the addition of a romantic subplot. Yeah. That was not the case in the book. She was like living with an aunt, I believe. And the other change is the one that you've already foreshadowed. This is the biggest change. They had to change the ending because of who they cast as the lodger. So do you want to share that? Sure. Let me find this here. So in the book, they are talking about the film Suspicion and the ending of Suspicion, which stars Cary Grant. And he says the ending of Suspicion was a complete mistake because of making that story with Cary Grant. Okay. So then later on, on page 137, he goes on to say the quote, the problem of having the leading man, Cary Grant, in this case, be guilty was the same problem we had faced in The Lodger. In those days, the audience wouldn't have put up with Ivor Novello being guilty, especially women. And a lot of the audience would be women anytime he was in a film. For the sake of their own careers, important stars won't be villains. The idols that we put up there must do no wrong. If they do, audiences don't approve of that sort of thing. Now on page 138, it finishes, it says, in Mrs. Bellic Lowndes book, The Ripper got away with it. Having Cary Grant as the hero meant I had to compromise. The best you could have was a bit of doubt and not much of that. Once the decision was made to have Cary Grant, it was like Novello, he had to be innocent. Yeah. I found out a little bit more, which I thought was so fascinating. Ivor Novello. He was a big deal. He was. Like, he was one of the biggest matinee idols of the time. What happened was he was born into a musical family and he rose to great fame in 1914 when he composed a patriotic song called Keep the Home Fires Burning, Mm -hmm. which was one of the biggest, most frequently performed numbers in Britain throughout the First World War. And actually, once America came into the conflict, it became popular in America too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then on top of that, he was a war hero. He flew in the Royal Naval Air Service. And then in 1916, he started composing hit musicals. And after the war, he became an actor. And started... he was amazing. Yes. So by the time he was cast in The Lodger, he had starred in nine movies. And according to one source, he was one of, if not the most popular screen star in Britain. And a lot of people called him Britain's handsomest screen star or screen actor. I gotta say, he was very handsome. You know, once he gets past being his creepy self and he, he takes off the the, <laughs> the scarf and he's acting, and especially when he's with Daisy, I was like, hello? What? I know. What? I know. And see, let's go ahead and just say that really quickly before we keep moving on. That's what got me. I'm watching it and I'm like, it seemed as though it seemed as though Daisy liked her boyfriend. Like, it, like it, she was leading him on too, though. She, she was, was flirting with him and he'd go to, I didn't even, I thought he was giving her unwanted advances until they're in the room together 
together and then she's actually kissing him. Right. Like, what kind of mixed signals are you doing here, Daisy? I agree. Because I thought the same thing. I'm like, is he a little bit aggressive? Is yeah. he a little bit domineering? But then she seemed to like it. To like him. And then all of a sudden, when she switched allegiance to the fella who clearly seemed like the murderer to me, <laughs> yes. I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, are you missing she's every signal? Taking the bad boy thing to the extreme. And it was funny because it was only after I realized, oh, this was the star that could, he had to be a hero. It made sense to that audience. Mm-hmm. But to somebody like myself, mm-hmm. I, was like, I was like, you all dropped the ball a little yes. bit because you made him, t- he was too clearly evil. There mm-hmm. was, I did not see anything that would have made that girl think that he was okay. Other than he's a leading man in Britain. And right. So, yeah. Right. Well, what I saw, and tell me if the book conflicts with this, okay. but I saw that Alfred Hitchcock wanted the ending to be ambiguous. He wanted to yeah. leave it open for yeah. the possibility that the lodger was the killer. Yeah. And there was not only, you know, his decision making, but the studio was also putting pressure on him. You know, I we don't want this great matinee idol yeah. to be bad. So that's why not only could it not be ambiguous, but they went above and beyond to make him innocent. Mm-hmm. And like now he's almost, what's of the word? Of course it's his sister, you know. Right. He It was like, it was like, no, oh no, he's not only innocent of being the killer, he's got to be heroic. Yes. He's got to, we now, he now has to be sympathetic. I know. At the end, the, the doctor says he's had a severe nervous strain. I was like, you think? He was just attacked by a mob and saved by his rival. Of course he's under a severe nervous strain. <laughs> So I have to make one other comment. Ivor, Ivor, however you say his first name, he clearly was a handsome man and he was a good actor. But I'm going to say as the person watching a silent movie where people have to be over the top and everything has to just be in your face, it was distracting to me. And so I saw this quote from the Golden Globes article that could not have resonated with me more closely. (laughs) So I'm going to read it because I just loved it. In the manner of movie stars and the acting style of of the day. Novello is stagey and overly theatrical in his mysteriousness, staring eyes lined with coal, even clearly lipsticked in some scenes, glowering and posturing to appropriately menacing music. He is actually prettier than the heroine. Yes, he is! Yes, he is! His first appearance in the film is particularly striking, accompanied as he is by eerie music as the landlady opens the door to him with his face half hidden by the scarf, a shadow passing behind him over the fog that is outside mm-hmm. the door and I was like yes 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 yeah, yes yes yeah. Like every bit of that why you gotta be creepy <laughs> yes <sighs> all right so we're moving to the end here just to kind of quickly throw this out, there were other people in the movie. Marie Alt was the landlady, Mrs. Bunting. Arthur Chesney was her husband, Mr. Bunting. <laughs> who could care less who Daisy ends up with. <laughs> That's so true. He's just like, don't bother me. I got to go to work. Yes. Just let me know who she picks. <sighs> June Tripp was Daisy Bunting. Malcolm Keene was the boyfriend detective, Joe Chandler. I even and... wrote at one point, now I think Joe did it. <laughs> because I was just like, what's happening? What is going on? <laughs> Oh, and then just to close this out, there were a couple of little insights I thought were interesting. The British Film Institute said on their site, tellingly, the killer's victims have golden curls, Mm -hmm. a predilection mirrored by the director's often troubling relationship with his beautiful blonde leading ladies later in his career. As seen in Stage Fright, The Wrong Man, Frenzy, and many others, innocent and sometimes guilty men under suspicion would be a popular motif in Hitchcock's work. 
And another article on that same site also comments on Hitchcock's themes. He said that this movie boasts many staples of Hitchcock's later work, including the themes of murder and suspicion, an obsession with blonde women, and Hitchcock's first ever cameo as a newspaper editor. That's awesome. Armchair psychologist. Well, I think that takes us to our armchair. And, and you know what? Since this is our final episode yes. on Hitchcock, and since you already kind of introduced that idea of, of look how far we've come, mm-hmm. why don't we why don't we do this as kind of a little look back? What are we a retrospective? So yes. I have a list here, and I know we're kind of running long, but I'm going to just give you some things that happened in 1927. Again, oh. not even a hundred years ago yet. In February, radio frequencies are first begun to be regulated. Mm. So before that, you could just have any radio frequency you wanted willy-nilly, and now they're like, wait, we're going to put some laws in this. Mm. By April, the first successful long-distance demonstration of television occurred. In May, we had the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences was founded in 1927. And in May, this is not entertainment, but it sort of is, Lindbergh made his famous flight from New York to Paris. I try to just pick entertainment stuff. In October, jazz singer premieres. The talkies are coming in. Then in December, Showboat opened on Broadway. Wow. In 1927. Yes. So here's people. Okay, now, if this doesn't give you a clue, like, how how recently 100 years was, I'm just going to give you a real fast, rapid list of people in the entertainment field or famous people born in 1927. Ready? Here we go. Mm-hmm. Eartha Kitt, hmm. Harvey Corman, Sidney Poitier, Givenchy, Harry Belafonte, John Kander, Herbert Ross, Bob Fosse, Gina Lola Brigida, Neil Simon, Janet Lee, Peter Falk, Tom Bosley, Roger Moore, George C. Scott, Andy Williams, and Mary Higgins Clark. Wow. People that were born the year this film came out. That's... Doesn't that make history like really? Yes. It makes it a lot smaller. It really does. Yeah. We're wow. thinking, oh, a hundred years ago. I think Gina Lillard Brigida was probably the last one to pass away of that group mm. because she just passed away. I mean, I don't, wow. none of these people are still with us, but that amazing. That is so interesting how fast things advance. Yes. And, and then to follow your idea, like we touched on it, but let's, let's flesh it out. We're sitting here talking about one of his earliest movies, his first critical yeah. and commercial success. Yeah. And it is a silent movie. Yep. You say, by the end of that year we have the jazz singer yep. and talkies are coming yep. and then we through the course of this month have talked about his entire his career black and white to color, color to the the boy who's experimenting mm-hmm. with these new techniques to the master of suspense mm-hmm. who is able to take small television crews or you know to create this these masterpieces or to take a tiny budget uh-huh. and create what he needs right masterpieces Some other overlap i don't remember the month that he died but he died the year i was born really yeah 1980 wow yeah we crossed in the cosmos yeah isn't that fascinating that is fascinating well i think that is a great way to wrap up our theme of the true crime behind hitchcock i do too this has been so interesting it really has it feels like we've gone through his almost like you were just saying his entire career Yes, I am coming out of this with a much greater appreciation for Alfred Hitchcock and his work, while also having learned so much more about true crime. I feel yeah. like we did double duty. We did. And this month, yes. I feel like we were a bonus for everybody. We did two things in we every did. episode. We did two things. That was a lot. <laughs> it that was. was a lot. You had a lot of work to do, too. Well, thank you. It really 
it really felt like a lot of work, but it was so fascinating. Yeah. It was so interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed it too. We are planning next week. You know, mm-hmm. we asked for listener suggestions. Mm-hmm. And so next week you are going to hear one of those. But here's a new twist, guys. Since it's 2024, we decided, we said it already, we want to incorporate more of your ideas, more of your voice. So every now and then, some of these listener suggestions are going to come out in these surprise episodes. You'll never know when it's going to happen, but they'll be our variety (laughs) episodes. Next week, you know it's coming. You're going to have one next week. And then after that, who knows? It'll just pop know. up. Yeah, just, just pop. pop up. But in the meantime, a huge cheers to, to Mr. Alfred. Right, to Let's Mr. do it Alfred officially. Hitchcock. Yes. Wow. I have to say, I'm so impressed with him. So impressed. Me too. Here's to you, Sir Alfred. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.